It's Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Thanks be to God. Right, well last week we were in, the, in Philippians, last week we looked together at chapter 3 and this letter from Paul to the church in Philippi and we considered three ways of life, the Christian way which brings deep, lasting joy, and two ways to be avoided, trusting in our own goodness or living for ourselves and focusing on this world. And as Paul said to the Philippians at the end of the chapter, in verse 18, he said, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies, so that they will be like his glorious body. And it's in the light of the warning to resist the temptation, to put your trust in anything else, and in the confidence that comes from trusting that Jesus will come again and will complete his transformation that he's already begun. That Paul says here at the beginning of chapter 4, Therefore, my brothers, or brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crowns. Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And as we look at his exhortations in verses 2 to 9 here, what we will see is that to stand firm involves trusting in God in all circumstances. And it's only when we have the trust in God's sovereign power that we can do what Paul tells the Philippians to do when he says rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. It's a verse that many of us will be familiar with. It's been our verse for the year before. And yet, of course, it is a great challenge, isn't it? How can we rejoice in the Lord always? How can we have joy 
in all circumstances. You know, particularly when I get up every morning thinking, you know, I really don't want to go to school today, I don't want to go to work today, I'm just tired, I'm stressed, I'm worried, maybe I'm afraid, maybe I'm ill. Well, for those of us here who are Christians, we will know the, the joy of having had our sins dealt with, of knowing Christ's forgiveness, being made right with God. And how is it then that that joy, that deep-seated joy, can be choked? How can we feel like a raging fire for Jesus at one point, only to have a pile of damp leaves quench that fire at another? Or how can we be a church that is an army marching as a unit in step? One moment, there's a picture, I think they come up on the screen. The next for a fog to descend and for us to become maybe a disparate bunch of individuals, the next. There are three basic exhortations that Paul is giving here, which in many ways are basic to living the life of a Christian, but which we so often easily forget. And yet they're essential to standing firm and being joyful in all circumstances. The first of those is to live in unity. And what really strikes me in this first verse of chapter 4 is just the love that Paul has for his fellow believers in Philippi. Just look at this. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends or beloved. To say that they are his joy and crown is quite amazing, isn't it? The crown is a symbol of the, the heavenly prize as we await our Saviour there. And Paul is saying, you are my joy and crown. This is how much they mean to the him. There's a real concern and, and passion that he has for them that comes out, continue in this letter. And it's out of that sense of love for them that he's able to admonish them for their divisions because he knows that unless they are united, then they're not going to be able to stand firm in their faith. And so he pleads with uh, the two key people who have fallen out with uh, Aodia and Syntyche. Resolve your differences. Agree with each other in the Lord. They may think, well, that's a little bit off, isn't it? Mentioning these two people by name, criticising them publicly. You know, surely he could have done a little bit more discreetly. But notice here, Paul doesn't take sides. He doesn't even try and summarise the, the issues that dis, in dispute, um, which can only make us think they must be minor issues. They're not issues that are essential to the gospel, else he would have spelt that out. But the fact that he mentions them by name would indicate this isn't just a, a personal disagreement between two women. This is something which has affected the whole fellowship. It is causing division. And so Paul is saying to them, look, sort it out. And he's asking others in the church to help them sort it out. I do hope as a church we wouldn't be shy in asking for help or offering help where it's needed. To refuse help may actually indicate a sense of pride in us that we don't need help, thank you very much. But we do need to be open, we need to be honest with our struggles as we are talking about yesterday at our elders and deacons retreat. Paul says, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. And I wonder if the reason he mentions the fact that they've contended with him in the cause of the gospel is to remind them that 
There is something greater at stake here than their minor divisions. There's the gospel here at stake. To agree on the gospel is to have a common mind on what it means to be saved. To want to see people be saved. And what he's getting at here is then their minor dispute. They're not actually doing anything for the cause of the gospel. In fact, they're actually probably hindering it. But also what he says here is that their names are in the book of life. He's saying that you'll both be in heaven together. You know, so these are differences that don't really matter. You know, rejoice in your citizenship in heaven. You're both citizens of heaven. You know, both have a mission to get on with, so do it and enjoy it. In church life, we will have disagreements over the best way of doing things. Um, after all, we've been made differently by God. We have different views, different outlooks, different backgrounds, different gifts. Which is why it does take time to discuss things, to, to pray through things, to seek the Lord's will together. But at the end of the day, most decisions we take as a church are not necessarily issues of right and wrong. They're normally issues of wisdom, of what is wise and maybe what not is, what is not quite so wise. If we take the building project, for example, the questions we're considering are what option will enable us to contend for the gospel most effectively? Or what option is the most wise use of the resources that God has given us? Now, if we don't make the wisest decision, God is not going to be that disappointed with us. You know, after all, he can still achieve his plans and our weakness, and we're still going ahead doing what we, we're trying to do. But if we fall out, or we stop doing gospel work, then we do have to answer for that. Let's also remember, as we discuss things, that if we are Christians, our names are written in the book of life, that we, we share this, this the treasure in heaven that we're going to be with each other together. So let's not let minor issues divide us. We stand firm by living in unity. Well, the second point is that we stand firm by trusting in God. As Paul continues to exhort the Philippians, he encourages them with a promise of blessing. Have a look at uh, in verse 7 here. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's the image of the peace of God standing guard over your hearts and minds. It's um, like the picture we have here, like a, a, a police cordon trying to protect Whitehall from those dangerous student protesters. I'm not sure the policeman in the middle there is a particularly good guard. Looks like he's having a bit of a kip. I'm not sure the person in the bottom left corner is a particularly dangerous protester either, but um, you get the idea here that um, the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds, because that's the centre of our beings. The hearts describe our whole personality, our will, our our emotions, our, our conscience. And the mind is the way into to the heart. It's where the thoughts and the plans and, and the desires start to, to formulate. Protect the heart and the mind, and then you can progress in the Christian faith. We'll come back to that promise at the end, because um, before he comes on to the promise, Paul gives the Philippians three exhortations here, which all have to do with trusting God. Uh, we did talk a lot about trusting God, and uh, so often we reduce it to a, a, a one-off decision about where we will spend eternity, to trust that Jesus died for me, that I can be forgiven. 
Now, of course, that is right. That is how we come into a relationship with God, by putting our trust in what Jesus did for us on the cross. But a trust in God is meant to characterise all of our lives, from when we get up in the morning to when we go to bed at night. And what that trust is about is a belief that, that God is in control of our lives. He's sovereign. And if I don't need to worry about what might happen today. And there are three aspects of that trust that Paul mentions here, which may at first reading appear totally unrealistic, but not when we trust in our sovereign God. first of those is rejoice in the Lord always. One of the groups I enjoyed listening to when I was younger was a group called The Police, and one of their tracks was On Any Other Day, which um, recounted a series of minor disasters, such as a wife uh, burning his scrambled egg, um, alongside some major disasters, such as his daughter leaving home. But the basic message of that song was, it will be okay on any other day. But Paul's exhortation here is not just saying, well, maybe tomorrow will be better. It's saying, rejoice in all circumstances, even when you have lost your job, even when you won't be getting any more child benefit, even when your planning application has been turned down. But even when there are serious issues in your life, even maybe when your cancer has come back, how do we do that though? By acknowledging that what happens to me is part of God's plan for me. And that even in the worst situation that I can imagine, God still loves me. Nothing can separate us from his love. To rejoice in the Lord always is to remember that we are his children. He is our Father, and he loves us. And that is the key to being able to rejoice always, to know that we are secure in the love of God. We can have the worst week, and yet God is still there for us. We can mess up badly. We can fail and feel really awful about ourselves, and God is still there for us. We can be let down by somebody dear to us, and God is still there. Rejoice in the Lord always. Secondly, let your gentleness be evident to all. Gentleness is a godly quality. It appears frequently in the New Testament. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in, in Galatians. In Colossians, Paul writes this. He writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. And in 1 Peter, Peter writes, you know, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And he says, but do this with gentleness and respect. The opposite to gentleness would be bluntness, inconsiderateness, disrespectfulness, rudeness. All attitudes, I'm sure we will at some time have had the misfortune to um, be on the receiving end of, as well as maybe possibly being, being the guilty party. But why does Paul mention gentleness here? Because probably it's in the context of a church that is suffering from a bit of division, who need to be reminded that we are working together for the same cause. Temptation to be dismissive of those you disagree with. And often when we are tempted to act in a way that is not gentle, it's because we are frustrated with other people. People are not doing certain things as we think they should be doing. And presumably we think we could do better. 
But again, this comes back to trusting in God's sovereignty because there will be things that we are convinced should be done differently and we're just powerless to change. But Paul is saying, instead of getting angry, instead of getting worked up, treat these people with gentleness. If we're trusting in God, then no matter how bad something may be, how cross we might be about somebody else's behaviour, how much we disagree with somebody, we should still be able to show gentleness and respect. We may think God is being a bit unreasonable here, expecting us to be like that when people are pretty awful to us. But he isn't expecting us to do that in our own strength. And that is what brings us on to the next point. Do not be anxious about anything. And again, it seems totally unrealistic. After all, you know, I'm anxious about uh, my job security. I'm anxious about um, what those people think about me. I'm anxious about my health or the health of my husband or wife or child. How do we counter that, that anxiety? Paul writes, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. In every situation, not just the biggies, not just those who are, that are major, but the little situations. You know, God doesn't expect us to look after the little issues ourselves and then wheel him in for the big ones. And the more we involve him in every aspect of our lives, the more we are showing that we are dependent on him the more we are recognising his sovereignty. But what about this this thanksgiving thing, though? You know, what's that about? Well, the reason we can combine thanks with petition is that to thank God for what he's already done is to express trust that he can work in the current situation as well. It's to acknowledge that he can bring good out of every bad situation. And so maybe when our child does something that disappoints us, we can thank God that they are a blessing to us, that he has done already good stuff in their lives. We can thank him for the opportunity that this has given us now to teach them something more about God. When we or someone dear to us is suffering, we can pray for healing. But at the same time, we can thank God that we have known his healing hand, that he cares for the person who's suffering and that it is an opportunity for them to grow in their faith. Stand firm by living in unity, by trusting in God, and thirdly, by living in godliness. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. There are two aspects to this living in godliness here. There's the mind and the body or the thoughts and the behaviour. And of course you can't separate them. What's in the mind affects the way that we behave. If our minds are full of thoughts of anger and aggression and revenge, it will be very difficult to be gentle with somebody else. And so the healing process begins in the mind. It begins by, by reading the Bible, by seeing the character of God, by reading the stories of Jesus, how he dealt with injustice and, and ignorance and stupidity and blindness. 
how he was still full of love and patience. It's also a question of understanding how merciful God has been to us, how we haven't deserved his love. And you, you may say now, much of what goes on in our society is actually not good, is not pure, is not lovely. So what do we do? Do we cut ourselves off? Do we not watch TV? Do we not go to the cinema? Do we not hang out with people whose language and behaviour is not pretty? Well, Jesus mixed with all sorts, didn't he? If he hadn't, then they wouldn't have known the gospel. And if we don't mix with those outside the church, we won't be able to be faithful witnesses for Jesus Christ. If we don't understand our culture, we won't be able to engage with what is drawing them, what are, are their idols, those people who don't believe in Christ, who worship other things or people. But at the same time, I do think we do need to keep careful watch on what is going into our minds. And that is particularly important, I think, for, for our children and young people. After, they, after all, they're exposed to the world more than we are, probably, being at school all day, every day. But let me ask, you know, not just young people, but all of us, what are the programmes that we're watching? What are the, the magazines we're reading? How does the time we spend doing these things which don't fill our minds with lovely, pure thoughts? How much does that time spent compare with spent time spent reading the Bible or praying? Are we in the world or are we of the world? I think what Paul is trying to say here is train your mind to give importance to purity. You know, look out for God at work in the world. Because whenever we hear or we see things that are true or noble or right or pure, whether they're things done or said by Christians or not Christians, that is still the grace of God at work in the world. And as we appreciate that, then we're filling our minds with purity and loveliness. Appreciate the beauty of a spiritual conversation. Appreciate an act of love or kindness or mercy because that is God at work. What Paul goes on to say is we can't limit our faith to our minds. Jesus didn't expect us just to think pure thoughts. He expected that purity to so envelop us that it overflows into our behaviour. When he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. He meant we should love him with our whole selves. And so Paul goes on to, to say here, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And there is the putting into practice. Whatever they've learned from Paul. In other words, what he taught them about living a life uh, worthy of the gospel, as he described in the previous chapter, a life that honours Christ following his example. And let me ask you, who are your Christian role models you look up to? For the younger people in the church, do you think they have men and women here who they can look up to? Whose life is so attractive, is so, so oozing Jesus Christ that they say, yeah, I want to be like them. Do we have these role models? If not, then we need to ask ourselves, why is that not the case? You know, recognising that none of us is perfect, but... Are we attractive to, to the younger people in the church? Who are, our own, who are our own Christian heroes? And hopefully they're not limited people in this church, but you know, hopefully we're reading Christian books. Hopefully we have Christian authors that we admire. Hopefully there'll be Christian preachers that we listen to on the, on the internet. 
who are far more gifted than Jeff or I. No, it's difficult to believe. But, um, you know, hopefully you'll be tempted to go to, to Christian conferences and listen to other speakers. Let's broaden our sphere of influence. Well, as we finish, let's come back to the promise. The promise is if we live in this way, in unity, if we live trusting in God, if we live godly lives, then there's a wonderful promise here. It's there again in verse 7. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In verse 9, the God of peace will be with you. It might just be helpful to think, what is that peace that he's talking about here? Is it just a warm and and cosy feeling? Is it the peace of drug-crazed hippies wearing flowers in their hair? For those who have fought in war, those who have lived through war, peace takes on a whole new meaning. It's the end of conflict, it's the end of death, it's the end of pain and sadness. But peace in the Bible is also about the end of conflict. It's the end of hostility between man and God. It's what Christ achieved on the cross for us. And so, when Jesus appeared to the disciples in the the upper room, after he came back from the dead, he said to them, peace be with you. Twice he said, peace be with you. It's a powerful thing, peace. It's not just a cosy feeling. Let me read from Hebrews 13. Here it says, may the God of peace, and listen to the power of what that God of peace was able to do, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. To be at peace with God is for our whole person to be right with him. It's to trust in his sovereign power and so it removes all anxiety and anger and bitterness as well as apathy and dejection. It fills us with joy in all circumstances.